0: Today on Big Biology, we talk with Robert Dudley, who is Professor and Chair of integrated Biology at UC Berkeley. He recently wrote a book in uh, 2014 called The Drunken Monkey, Why We Drink and Abuse Alcohol, uh, published by University of California Press. And in the book, he lays out his uh, what he calls his drunken monkey hypothesis, which searches for deeper evolutionary origins of the relationship between humans and ethanol. Um, his idea focuses on evolutionary and ecological origins of alcohol consumption among primates, and that includes us humans. Uh, what we know about changes in alcohol consumption in human populations over the past 10,000 years or so And what, if anything, uh, an evolutionary perspective provides for understanding alcohol addiction and medical approaches to treating alcohol-related disorders? Robert, welcome to Big Biology. Great to have you on.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: (laughs) Um, I wanted to start just by asking you how you came to write a book about drinking and alcohol in primates, uh, given your long history of interest in uh, insects and flight
1: so I am a primate and I do drink from time to time, but that's not what really motivated my interest in this topic. I have been spending a lot of time in Panama for the last three decades now, and I see a lot of animals and I see a lot of monkeys, and I also see a lot of fruit uh, one way or another, even though I'm usually studying insects and hummingbirds. So uh, one day just you know, sort of thinking about it, sort of uh, why are we drinking uh, monkey fruit, human alcohol monkey fruit, and it just sort of clicked that perhaps there's a link uh, via f- natural fermentation of nutritional substrates that binds uh, primates, which are an ancestrally fruit-eating group, to uh, selection of fruit in the wild and ultimately to human modern-day drinking behavior. Mm-hmm.
0: So so you frame your book really around the question of um, why do we humans drink alcohol? Um, and, I, and I think to a lot of people, the answer would be like, well, of course, you know, duh, it, it tastes good and if we don't drink too much of it we feel pretty good that's why we drink and yet i mean i guess to me that's a pretty shallow answer and and you're sort of after something else about sort of deeper evolutionary re- reasons for for the appeal of, of alcohol like that so so what what's the overall thesis of of the book
1: Right. Well, we obviously drink because we like to drink, and that's true for many other things we engage in, but that's approximate explanation. And evolutionary biologists like ultimate explanations. So, why did we evolve the sensory capacity to taste and, more importantly, enjoy alcohol as opposed to vinegar or any of the other tens of hundreds of thousands of organic compounds, vintage vinegars? You know, we use it in cooking, but we don't routinely drink vinegar. So, uh, you know, the deeper time perspective is very important because it relates to a broader field of um, what we now call Darwinian medicine or evolutionary medicine that seeks to place modern day human behaviors and also in some cases pathologies within a more deeply rooted sort of ancestry. And as primates, we enjoy common heritage with apes and the uh, You know various kinds of monkeys in both the old and new world and it turns out that many of these animals are actually fruit eaters primates are ancestrally going back 25 million years ago um fruit eating animals and they're also Mm -hmm. living in the tropics so one idea of course is that if they're consuming fruits because of sugars and lipids, but when you have sugars and even things like nectar, which are, of course, dilute sugar-rich solutions, um, in the tropics, there are also a lot of yeasts, and yeasts just naturally ferment alcohol, ferment sugars to produce alcohol. So that may be a commonality of all fruits and nectars in the tropics is that there is actually low-level alcohol present. So all animals that are eating those substrates are actually consuming alcohol. Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, in terms of our own evolutionary history, I mean, I I think of humans as pretty omnivorous. And, you know, I myself eat a lot of fruit, I think most of us do, but we're not, we're not pure fruit eaters. So, so how long ago did our ancestors have a mostly fruit diet?
1: So, if we go back and look at the apes more broadly. So we can start with the gibbons, about 24 species, and move on to the orangutans, and then the gorillas, and of course the chimpanzees, our nearest relatives. And we diverged about four or five million years ago from the least, or the most common uh, recent ancestor of, of chimpanzees and, and ourselves. Um, clearly, um, going back even two million years in the evolution of the genus Homo, there was a predilection toward fruit consumption. And we know this from dentition, from dental remains, we know this from uh, various paleoanthropological studies of environments and just other aspects of the biology of these animals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about that association.
0: So why why is it that fruits themselves produce alcohol and and why is that associated with, with nutrition and, and calories from
1: sugar? So fruits derive from flowering plants, otherwise known technically as angiosperms, and they are engaged in an evolutionary mutualism with animal consumers. So many fruits are not dispersed by wind, but rather they are dispersed by animals which consume the fruit and then either in their gut or just via past sort of throwing off the seeds um, effect uh, translation in, in, in space as a dispersal f- for the benefit of the, of the plant. So this in these mutualistic arrangements, it's important for both participants to have a benefit. Otherwise, it won't evolve. And the benefit provided by the plants to the animals is nutrition. And usually, if you think about sugary, rich, uh, gooey sort of tropical fruits like mangoes or pineapples or any of the hundreds of other kinds of species. And there are literally thousands of kinds of fruits in the tropics. They have pulp and within that pulp is mostly sugar. It's actually a lot of water, but there's sugar, there's structural carbohydrates, in some cases they're lipids as well, fats, but animals consume all of these um, compounds with relish. So if you have sugars in aqueous environments, and you can do this at home, of course, by adding sugar to water and a little bit of yeast, and you will generate alcohol. The yeasts are actually producing it, and of course, not the plants, but it's an inevitable consequence of having um, the carbohydrates, sort of low molecular weight sugars like glucose, fructose, sucrose, present within water. It, you do need the yeast to participate, and it turns out yeast spores are everywhere. They are everywhere on plants. They're in the air, particularly in tropical environments. They land on fruits. They even land on flowers before flowers. Turn into fruits, and sometimes you might have had the experience of opening up an avocado. It looks great, and it's rotten from the inside out. That's because of the the fungal spores were actually deposited at the floral stage. So the yeasts are everywhere. Sugars are within fruit. Yeast ferment sugar to produce ethanol, and that is a ubiquitous cue then to any animal, both over long distance to smell alcohol. It'll tell you where the where the sugar is, but also over short distance to, to kind of like get a better heady sort of brew and odor, we like, lets you decide which fruits might be best to eat, which has, which is the right fruit. So, you're only going to get this outcome when you've got sugars within and available to, for consumption. And, and, and what do you expect of the sort of highest
0: levels that, that fruits would attain? I, I guess fruits that are being eaten by primates,
1: right? That's the, that's the key question. So. Exactly. So, We did this uh, set of measurements on palm fruits in Panama that we know uh, white-faced monkeys and spider monkeys and some other monkeys and a lot of other mammals are are eating. And using my a priori initial characterization of fruits as ripe, in other words, they look like they're suitable for consumption, the average value was 0.5% of the fruit pulp, which doesn't sound like very much. But these animals can eat up to 10 percent of their body weight a day in fruit because they are dedicated fruit eaters so it's not just a concentration of what you're drinking but how much you drink of it that determines the overall dosage Mm -hmm. but we did get some over what i thought of as characterized as overripe fruits which were as high as eight percent alcohol and it's really tasty stuff you know it's like this is really nice rich palm fruit uh, pulp so so you try it yourself Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Yeah. So we, we want to get back to humans here pretty soon, but since you brought it up, I want to ask about um, mechanisms of drunkenness. So, so what is it in you know, some non-technical way that ethanol does inside our bodies that makes us drunk?
1: Unlike all other psychoactive drugs that humans in, consume recreationally, ethanol has no specific receptor or binding molecule, so there are no ethanol receptors on particular neurons in our our brain. Instead, it acts much more broadly on the central nervous system, and it's not entirely clear what the effects of the ethanol are other than to change what's called membrane fluidity, basically how cell membranes are sort of composed and can move, and more importantly, can allow other pro- proteins and other receptor molecules embedded within the, those membranes to move relative to one another. So, it's a very broad-acting molecule. And what's what's kind of interesting is just to think that, well, maybe it is the original drug in the sense, you know, it is psychoactive. And the argument of the drunken monkey hypothesis is that the psychoactive properties are beneficial in the context of feeding on fruit. So, basically, it's a uh, what psychologists call hedonic reward. So, consumption of ethanol stimulates further consumption of the ethanol-containing substrate. So, when you get to ripe fruit crop in the tropics, consume as much as you can. You binge consume to prevent others from getting it, you know, so there's a lot of competition, the microbes are already there, that you feed until your gut fills up. And animals don't get drunk in the wild most of the time because their gut fills and they satiate before they can get high level of uh, ethanol reward. So, the, there's just a a, a a much more broad acting basis for ethanol effects in the central nervous system of mammals. But interestingly enough, some of the um, there are pathways called dopaminergic pathways which are involved in the regulation of feeding behavior, which are s- similarly stimulated indirectly via alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. So it may be that somehow ethanol is piggybacked onto these. These reward pathways in our brain, for historical evolutionary reasons, were actually very beneficial. But now we have high concentration, high availability alcohol. It's like with high sugar availability, high fats availability. Things can go badly wrong.
2: And, and Robert, you mentioned a few other uh, potentially adaptive benefits of alcohol consumption. I wonder if you want to say anything about that in terms of you know protection against microbes in a direct sure. way and lifespan, those types of things. Yeah. So
1: ethanol is a microbicide. And going back to the 19th century, there were cardiologists and doctors then and cardiologists now have noticed that low-level ethanol consumption seems to be protective against cardiovascular risk relative to either high-level consumption or no consumption. So this is what uh, epidemiologists call a nonlinear dosage response curve, that there's kind of a sweet spot in the middle or consumption of certain things and that's true for heavy metals that's true for vitamins that's true for a lot of things but this is a this is something that animals are sort of routinely exposed to if they're drinking nectar or consuming fruit at least that's the hypothesis so what this argues and there's a there's a a, a jargony word called hormesis which suggests it's this non-linear dosage response curve that suggests that if you are evolutionarily exposed to something at low concentrations you, met- you evolve the capacity to metabolize it, but also benefit from it, relative to abnormal, abnormally high concentrations on the one hand, or to its absence on the other. So that concept of Beneficial effects of low-level chronic routine alcohol consumption has been eminently borne out by about 40 years of hardcore epidemiology, looking at cardiovascular risk and controlling for all other kinds of things. So there are, there are definitely some benefits, and the mechanism has actually been figured out. Ethanol interferes with formation of arteriosclerotic plaques in coronary arteries, and which is a primary you know, pathway for uh, cardiac disease. And there's a there's secondary evidence suggesting that the initial formation of those plaques is by bacteria, which, of course, would be susceptible to ethanol as a microbicide. So it may actually, ultimately, in modern-day humans, the beneficial effects of low-level drinking may link back to the ancient association between yeasts, fruits, and bacteria. So ethanol being a microbicide. That, that's one of the possible benefits. But you get the same result for fruit flies if you expose them to low-level alcohol. You can increase lifespan of fruit flies.
2: We're going to take a quick break. Big biology will continue when we come back. I've got
1: a follow-up question,
0: too, about um,
2: uh,
0: ethanol as a microbicide. So I think your implication is that that blood alcohol levels are high enough to have antimicrobial activity.
1: So is there any evidence that that they do? So... In humans, the epidemiology shows that not just consumption of ethanol, but particularly consumption of ethanol in association with food provides cardiovascular benefit. And if you ask where are the microbial contaminants and we're riddled with infections, most of them never go anywhere. But our mouths obviously are a major source of bacteria. So alcohol ingestion with food may actually be intimately sort of commingling bacterial <laughs> contaminants with a microbiome.
0: Oh, so that's
1: one that's one possibility.
0: Yeah. So 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 you're talking about killing microbes in the mouth, not killing them after they're
1: already in the bloodstream well, and associated with plaques. Nobody really knows. So that those kinds of studies as far as I've been able to discern have ever been done. So it's not quite clear where the mechanism of action might be. So these are, the epidemiology is all correlational. It's retrospective. It's not prospective intervention. So we don't know exactly, you know, you you, want, you can't do it experimentally on humans, but it's been done experimentally on fruit flies and on rodents, lab rodents, and you get the same result. There's something nice about low-level alcohol on a daily basis as opposed to zero abstention or really high levels. Mm-hmm. And this is not a public health um, prescription to go out and drink more ethanol, of course, because, uh, you know, it's it's very case. It has to be calibrated against family background. It's sex specific because females have, the curves are different for men and women. um, It also depends a little bit on genetic background. There are interesting genetic variants amongst modern day humans in the capacity to degrade ethanol. Most famous of these is, of course, the East Asian facial flush or red flush phenomenon. So many East Asians, however you define that, and it's kind of arbitrary, but mostly Han, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, about 80% of those populations have a very slow-acting enzyme to degrade ethanol, and they get sick when they drink even very tiny amounts of alcohol. So as a consequence, they tend not to drink at all, so historically, rates of alcoholism have been claimed to be much lower in East Asia than in the rest of the world because they can't metabolize ethanol, so they they don't drink. But if you even look within East Asian populations, the people who are locally classified as alcoholics are 10 times more likely to have the fast-acting version of these enzymes. Hmm. So they can metabolize ethanol. It doesn't ensure that they will become addicted to ethanol, however you define addiction, but it just means they, the potential is there. There's strong genetic underpinnings, and that suggests that there's been selection just even in the last 10,000 years on modern-day humans in the capacity to metabolize alcohol. We know that's true for fruit flies. There's lots of alcohol metabolizing uh, variants, uh, but even in modern day humans, and also uh, actually across the great apes, we know that about 12 million years ago, there was a dramatic change, an increase by a factor of 20 in the ability of uh, uh, these animals to degrade ethanol. And that seems to correlated with terrestrialization. They go bipedal, they're on the ground more, and the inference or hypothesis is that they're obtaining greater access to fruits that are on the ground that have been sitting around and fermenting. So there's greater dietary exposure, and there's been selection for a better capacity to degrade ethanol. That's hypothetical, but it's a possibility. But there is a signature in the the genome of ancestral exposure to alcohol, even in modern-day primates, so including ourselves.
2: So, Robert, what about modern... uh human populations i mean do, do you has anyone or do you have ideas about why human populations are different with respect to their capacity to metabolize I mean, where do these variants come from and in, in uh, the populations you were referring to before
1: so the east asian variants have been actually well characterized since the 1970s but only have been recently dated using molecular clocks to the origins of rice domestication. They're new, they're like 10,000 years old, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually very new and recent compared to the age of our species. So there's no good explanation as to why in East Asia and only in East Asia do you find these slow acting variants. Well, one hypothesis, of course, is it's protective against alcoholism, however you define alcoholism, that's a possibility. Another one involves a third participant like the sickle cell anemia or other kinds of arguments is that in stored grain, stored rice products and grain products, there are fungal toxins, mycotoxins, and that somehow the intermediate metabolic chemistry of alcohol degradation in these East Asian populations is protective against these mycotoxins. So that there's been selection for these, what's called acetaldehyde formation in in the pathway of alcohol degradation, that somehow having greater acetaldehyde concentrations it, it makes you averse to alcohol, but it is protective against mycotoxins. Yeah. So in terms of uh, human um, domestication of crops and origins of controlled fermentation, um, Patrick McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania has made a beautiful career in the field he created called molecular archaeology, whereby he goes to or or museums and archeological sites throughout the Near East, but also more recently in China. And there are, by scraping out in essence residues on what are thought to have been fermentation vessels and ceramics and other kinds of things, there are very specific molecular markers for the presence of fermented plant compounds. And you can actually get very specific um, taxonomic identification of the kinds of fruits that are used. So for a long time, people had always said the Near East was the origin of domestication and origin of wine. And that's probably true, but it's probably not. It might be more in uh, sort of parts of Iran, modern-day Iran rather than Iraq and so on. But then uh, they found that the earliest unambiguous archaeological evidence for, for intentional fermentation is actually in central China. And it pushed it back to about, I think, about 10,000 years B.C., something like that. Um, and what were they fermenting? Hawthorn berries, amongst other things. So, they didn't have nice domesticated fat grapes then, but there's a lot, there is a lot of fruit and a lot of other things. So, it turns out that ancient beers and wines had many more ingredients and different kinds of ingredients than what we use today. So, uh, Pat, Patrick has actually partnered with a brewery on the East Coast to recreate many of these ancient uh, brews. And they're very different and they're very tasty. You know, it's just a question of what you like and what you're exposed to. So, it's Um, But uh, there's a broader hypothesis out there is that the origins of domesticated crops are as much about um, grain and fruit storage for the purposes of generating alcohol as they are for long-term storage of carbohydrates. So in other words that fermenting is a a way of preserving grains and fruits because alcohol is a microbicide and in fact if you go to um, parts of Africa or the Indian subcontinent Many times people will drink, it's, it's a combination of eating and drinking a fermented millet or sorghum kind of paste. So it's neither liquid nor solid, but it's a fermented product of agriculture so that that would have been an easy way if you had grains an incipient domestication of grains and fruits and things like that you just throw it all into a big vessel and you just store it there and it starts to ferment and you consume some and you add in more substrate and that that may have been as important to the origins of Domestication of crops, as was, say, bread making, or any of the other more classical ideas. So we have a we have a long, tight history with uh, alcohol.
2: That's a pretty good segue into what are we going to do with this information? Um, I mean, it, the drunken monkey hypothesis I personally find fascinating, but uh, you know, I've been indoctrinated a long time ago. I've been teaching evolutionary medicine for years. Um, there's a lot of skeptics out there, as you know, about uh, just. The tenets of evolutionary medicine generally, and they come from a bunch of different perspectives. But um, what have been your responses? And I mean, I, I guess the the argument about the environment being different now than it was being able to get lots of concentrated stuff fairly readily, that's a big part of it. But but knowing that or knowing what, having this hypothesis for the drunken monkey, what are we going to do to change our behavior, to to minimize alcoholism?
1: Yeah, I think one way to think about it is to realize that it is an attraction to alcohol may be a general feature of sensory biology of primates it's not something you can turn off very easily and that's true for drive for calories more generally you can't just prohibit consumption of calories prohibit consumption of alcohol that doesn't work as a public policy sort of prescription instead you have to think more broadly about even though people do engage in sometimes self-destructive behavior how can you mitigate the exposure Mitigate the consequences of that behavior. So, taxation, for example, we cigarette smoking incidents was reduced dramatically over the last three or four decades. So, for whatever reasons that people might smoke cigarettes, there are effective public policy sort of things that can be done to limit the damage, the negative effects of of cigarettes. So, so too with alcohol consumption, maybe in terms of you know just the recognition that it is. Um, it's not an aberrancy or a novelty that it is like, it's like the drive for sugars and fats that is maybe it is truly part of the feature of, of our, of our biology that, um, we can't, that can potentially influence, um, sort of ways that we might try to regulate or control the negative aspects of it. Um, you know, there have been arguments that because of the cardiovascular protective benefits of, um, Al- Low-level alcohol consumption to put health advisory labels on a, on wine and beer promoting consumption of alcohol, right? Because it's a positive thing That's a that's a kind of a river inverse argument But at the same time we don't really know much about what regulates the transition from kind of we'll call it responsible drinking to excessive consumption so it, it so I think you know, there's no just knowing where things came from doesn't necessarily tell us how we can treat sort of subsets of the deleterious or, or negative behavior, but the historical context is always going to be relevant for things like sickle cell anemia and a lot of other sorts of features. If you really just want to understand it, it doesn't explain how to solve some of the addictive disorders, but just to try to understand um, what 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 is addiction more generally. So I think just trying to understand the basis of the attraction to alcohol ultimately one would hope would lead to a, better sort of set of, of treatments and possibly a cure for the dis- disease. Well,
0: yeah. thanks. Thanks so much yeah. for joining us, Rob. I really appreciate okay. it. And uh, a great, yeah. I, have, I have one last question. Sure. What are you going to drink tonight for dinner?
2: Oh,
1: what do I have lined up? We have a Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> already open. That's <Yeah>, so, okay. <laughs> uh, just going to add a Perfect. party on the weekend. So, I, you know, one to two glasses a day just yeah. be on the safe side, but nothing to excess. Yeah. You yeah.
0: got to protect your health.
1: Everything <laughs> in moderation.
2: Yeah, that's right. So. There you go. Okay, guys. See you later. All, right. right. All, right. All, right. All right. Thanks, you, Robert. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Special thanks to Matt Blois for editing and production help. Thanks also to Gerard Cepes, Roman Boisseau, Devin O'Brien, Steve Lane, Victoria Doloff, Haley Hanson, Holly Kilvitis, Travis Flock, Meredith Kernbach, Chloe Ramsey, Jeff Olberding, Laura Shonley, Cynthia Downs, and Suzanne Miller.